we're going to start super practical and then head deep. <clears throat> so I told you last week I'd show you how to do online giving, and here's how to do it. If you go to the website, I told you it was practical, go to the website. At the top of the church website is campuses. So you would go there and you would click. And you'd get to our campus, Hokesson campus, and you see the little circle around give? You'd click that. Your internet may not be this fast. <laughs> now, if you get to this page, it tells you all the different ways you can give, right? Um, offering and tithes, that was one of the ways. Some of you may be uh, real bank-oriented, and you've already established uh, Online banking, you can arrange for that to happen. That's typically free of charge with your bank. And the only difference between that and online giving is online giving charges a small fee. So you can, like the whole church could decide, well, we're going to do online banking. And you could do that, and there would be no fee charged. Or if you're like financially lazy like I am, you need something like online giving to kind of help you along. That's the only difference. So... Uh, and then I suppose if you're so much cooler than me, you could give me a text. But I can't actually think of like a reason to tell you to do that. So what, you can do it. If you click that button, you come to this page. Now, these are two different pages. The left symbol is its own page. And you may feel like uncomfortable going, I just stick in a mountain and hit go. Like, how does that happen? All it does is bring you to the, the, the right image, and that's where you really fill things out. So you could put like a million dollars here and feel generous for a click and then, you know, back it off a little bit if you see the need. Uh, that's how it works. If you have any other questions, you could advance the slide one more. There's a giving frequently asked questions. That should help you. You don't have to change the way you're giving. We're not saying don't use the offering plate. I, I know. Is there anyone here who doesn't often write checks? Yeah? No? Okay, I see a few hands. If you're not a check writer, we're, we're leaving the land of checks and, and heading into the new era. Uh, this is to, I just want to help you and your discipline to be right before the Lord. That's what we're doing. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> okay, this morning's message is on satisfaction. And we'll be in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 5, which is page 472. We'll be talking about satisfaction. I want to describe it a little bit with my dog. If I have a tennis ball and I throw it, my dog loves to fetch it. If I have two, two tennis balls, she doesn't know what to do with herself. Like you throw one and she brings it back and you throw the other and she drops because in her mind, the one that she'd rather have is the one that's not in her mouth. So she would pick up a tennis ball, and then as soon as it was in her mouth, she'd look over at the one that's not in her mouth, and she'd drop that one and go pick up that one, and she could just do that in the room. Among the human race, we call this the grass is greener in someone else's yard. That's what's going on there. Another thing my dog will do is if you give her a rawhide or a bone, she will prance around the house very proud of her find, and she'll bring it to each person to show them, look what I have. And once you've seen her prize, she will then try to go hide it. But she can't handle hiding it because she wants it. 
So she'll set it down, but then she'll pick it back up, and then she'll try this, and eventually she just eats it. Okay? This, in the human race, is what we call having, wanting to have your cake and eat it too. And these are two major tenets of dissatisfaction in life. is the idea that the grass is greener in someone else's yard, and we want to have our cake and eat it too. You can have it or you can eat it, but you can't have it and eat it. In the American dream, uh, the American dream is a great truth. Is a great, it is a dream. <clears throat> but there's some small type to the American dream that is rarely ever mentioned. And I wrote it down. I want to bring you the small type of the American dream. This is an asterisk in five font. Under the dream. So the American dream is this that your life is not predetermined by your originating circumstances. How you came into America is not how you must remain in America. You can advance or alter your destination. However, Asterix 1 says, You are finite. So you may be able to do anything in America, but you cannot do everything in America. Now, this is not often what gets kind of projected out to us. The feeling, the kind of the voice that goes along with the American dream is that you can do everything. You can be this, and you can be that, and you can be this. You can't. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You can be that, or you can be that. You can't be everything. The double asterisk says that in order to have things, something has to be given up. Our dreams and our upward mobility, if you want to call it that, they come at a cost. It's not all gain. They come at a cost. You have to work hard. You have to not rest when others are resting, not play when others are playing, not be with family when maybe you would otherwise want to be with family, work later than other people, work harder than other people. And then this is, it's, I don't, it's not actually a second asterisk, it's the little cross. Buyer's remorse is inevitable in the American dream. Once you have it, what you don't have, what you could have, looks better. Right? The grass is always greener. In other words, um, satisfaction, in, I think, it is a human challenge. But our culture has some small print, I think, that makes it particularly acute, or at least in ways that we can, we can understand. And, and that's what we want to wrestle with this morning, is, is how do we find satisfaction uh, in this life? Because it's, it's a complicated idea. You know, I approached it, and I suppose I could just say, be satisfied. That's what the Lord wants you to do, is be satisfied. But it seems to miss enough truth about r- real life. Let me give you an example. Everything you have, there's a better version of it somewhere else. There's always a better version of the thing that you have. Whatever you have, there's a version of it with the cherry on top. That's just true. There's nothing that you don't have where there's not a better version of it. And it really is better. It's better. A, a quick quiz. It's a pop quiz. 
Do you want A, $5, B, $50, C, $500, D, $5,000, or E, your so above material possessions you don't care? You want D. We all want D. I want my D and I'd like to have your D also. (laughs) Why? Because D is better than A. In the realm of created objects, there's always a better version of the object. So we have it and then it's there. Now in the issue of satisfaction, you can see how this can breed dissatisfaction. It's because what we have, there's always, if we worked a little harder, there'd be that thing. Now, the truth about it is, the thing really is better, okay, as far as things go. But as far as how the thing contributes to the good life, the meaningful good life, this good and godly life, whole life, where we're right before the Lord, the better thing doesn't necessarily make any additional contribution to that life. So it may be better, but it's not gooder. It's not giving any additional value to your life. I'll give you an example. Your car, when it was new, had new car smell, which is worth something. When it lost its new car smell, was it of less value to your, your being? No. Oh. I mean, to the degree that a car can even play a role in the good life. If you'd say, well, the car I have is what enables me to get to work. And so I work so I can produce so that my family can eat. Like, in that sense, there's a goodness in the car that it enables you to have your job. A a better car doesn't, is not more good there. It's better, but it's not gooder. the trick the world plays is to look to better things for more goodness. We have, we're missing something in us and we want to be, we all want to be whole. Everybody wants to be whole. We want goodness and, and we're looking for places and what the world says is the better thing is also the gooder thing. And that's not what the Lord says. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes 4. I want to start there. Very, it's very practical, okay? And some of the questions I feel we can take is, how does satisfaction coexist in a world where there's better things? What, uh, where is satisfaction to be found? How do I know when I found it? Those, those are the kind of ideas that we're, we're going to be dealing with this morning. And we're going to deal with it at a very like practical first. It's all practical and spiritual, but it will feel practical first in the Old Testament, and then we'll migrate to the New Testament, and it'll be spiritual first as we deal with this question. But we'll be in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. And before I read it, I want to give one warning. I guess a warning and a comment. The warning is, in the word... The word recognizes, uh, there's a proverb that says, Lord, don't make me so poor that I'm desperate. Don't make me so wealthy that I'm disconnected. Is essentially the vibe of the verse. God recognizes these extremes. Uh, ex- the extremity of impoverished want, right? In the extremity of 
wealth beyond toil. Um, this message on satisfaction lives inside of these extremes. So God gives us the right to pray for our daily bread. There's certain, the rules begin to change when the necessities of life cannot be met, okay? But inside of this, I want you to say the message of satisfaction is living inside these extremes where the axioms of keeping up with the Joneses, uh, grass is greener, can't have your cake and eat it too, where those are operative is inside of those extremes. That's where we're preaching this morning. The second thing I want to say, and I don't know, this could be said anywhere in the series, but it seems appropriate to say it now, um, is uh, I want to... My family is very grateful for the way this church cares for us. And we are satisfied. Like in reflection on this, you're a very caring church. And you care for all the pastors in the church well. And I want to thank you for that. And um, I would say in our own life, we are joyful to say, we can say the word enough and be telling the truth. Okay, let's look here in chapter 5. Verse 10, this is what uh, the writer says. I'm going to read 10 to 12. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Okay, it's a lot being said there, and we're going to move at a good clip here, but it all hangs on the love of money. This is not a teaching about money. This is teaching about the love of money. It's the problem behind this. Is the lover of money has a belief that the good life, the good whole life is attainable through the pursuit of better things. I, I want something more for my life, so if I replace this object with its better version, my life will be better. The lover of money puts their hope in things. This is good to quiz yourself on, like introspectively. They trust in things. They dream of things. They plan their life around things. When I get that, then I'll be happy. That is a lover of money. And the writer says, there's no satisfaction there. It ain't gonna happen. And he gives some reasons why. In the 11th verse, he says, one ironic reality is, is the more you make, the more liabilities you have. The rapper would say it this way, more money, more problems. It's how it's, uh, it's about how it's said. More money, more problems. He does, that's how he says it. <laughs> that's what happens. If you ever notice you get a pay raise, you get a pay raise and your expenses rise right on the line. You know, how does that happen? You're like, we're making more this year, but, but we're spending more this year. And, and all the things that used to be luxuries are now mandatory. You know, we have to go to Moe's. Same number, uh, that's no longer negotiable. 
and the kids grow and they eat more and everything gets expensive and then you choke because you realize there's auto insurance coming and then there's college. Things consume your wealth. That's what he says in 11. And he says 12, he says, nor is there comfort in wealth. Inside the boundaries, inside the extremes, he says the lover of money pursues wealth at a great cost because money is a very temperamental and needy lover. There's massive drama to the lover of money. High maintenance to the lover of money. Money always has requests, always needs more, always wants to talk, always has a problem, is always being harmed and hurt. It is a high-maintenance lover. It's a needy child. Comes at a cost. I'll read through 13 through 17 quickly. Uh, I want to get to 18, uh, but I don't want to skip it. But the writer's going to talk about some, some... Sad ironies about the lover of money. He says, there's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. He's talking about a hoarder, a miser. He says, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. Someone who gained and gained and gained and then lost it all. And he's a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. All that he's worked for, the writer's saying, doesn't go with him. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. I think Charles Dickens got the Scrooge from this verse. That image is like his bedroom. The lover of money will pull you away from people. Lonely. And we come to the beginning of the answer in 18. He says, Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. The writer just steps back and says, You know what? You know what there is to do? Recognize your lot. Accept it. Enjoy what God gave you. Be content. That's essentially what he says there. He says it better in the 19th verse. Listen to this. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. These are... There's four ideas. I mean, it's essentially, it's a brief four-part sermon. You could just, these four ideas is a human recipe to satisfaction. This is what he says. He says in 19, to everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions. So the first thing he's saying is, is to those who do not live in the extremity of want. Right? Lord, will you please give me my daily bread? This is, you could pray these four things. This prayer would sound like, Lord, would you please, through the, work of my, the hard work of my labor, allow me to support my family. Preserve us, save us from want, dear Lord. That is a prayer I think the fellowship is allowed to pray. The Lord is my shepherd. 
I shall not be in want. The second thing he says is this, and the power to enjoy them. So God has given us, Lord, give me enough so I can eat, and Lord, allow my eyes to find enjoyment over the things that I possess. Not long for enjoyment over the things that I do not possess. We have basements in this church. Well, this church barely has a basement. You have basements, and I have basements, and they are full of things we do not use, nor do we enjoy. We have a habit. Anytime you move, you realize this. You're like, why did we buy that thing? You know why we bought that thing? Because there is a sense that there is some level of goodness in it. If I just get the better thing, it'll be gooder for my life. The Lord is saying, you know, there is genuine value to be able to being able to enjoy the very things you have. Enjoy those things. You could pray, Lord, I pray that you would allow me to labor in such a way that bears enough fruit that I can feed my family and provide for their needs. And I pray, Lord, that you would show me the things that I have and allow me to use them. Allow, Lord, to the extent that they can for those things to be my material preoccupation, not the things that I don't have. And then there's a third thing, right? So he says, to those who's given wealth and possessions, the power to enjoy them, here's the third thing, and to accept his lot. Accept your lot. To be able to pray to the Lord, may this, may my present circumstances in this job or in this station of life, may that be enough. Father, help that to be enough. I've counseled with someone in the past, actually several times. One time it was ironic how the language worked. They were, I, I can't stop climbing the ladder was the person's kind of problem is I know where this ladder is going and I don't want to go there. But in me is programmed that I'm worthless if I don't keep climbing. That's, that was the problem. Because the industry this person was in only respects the climbers. They just needed to be told, like, why don't you just get off the ladder? You can do that. You can do that. Can you at least begin to pray, Lord, would you please allow me to view the lot in, that I am, my lot in life, as something you've given me, as something you've ordained for me, as something that's meaningful. It's not just another jump off point to the thing that's meaningful. But I, I can find meaning now. I don't need the better to find the goodness. It can be meaningful now. And then he says this, to accept his lot and finally to rejoice in his toil. Lord, would you please give me the ability to provide for my family so they're not in want? And would you give me the eyes and the disposition to enjoy the things that I have? And Lord, would you work in me so that I'm not always looking to move on to the next bigger and better thing, but I would accept the day that you've given me and the lot that you've given me until you push me somewhere. 
And Lord, my toil and my labor, would you help me find ways that, that bring meaning and purpose to it for my life? Those are four good prayers that bring a man and a woman to satisfaction. I think this is a genuine endeavor. And it's, by the way, this is a vertical experience about your horizontal life. This is a, if you can do this, the writer says, this is the gift of God. In other words, it's not natural. You should not naturally be able to do this. You must apply yourself at doing this. And if you can do it, it's a gift to God. It's, you are in constant dialogue with the Lord, right? When we drive by Buckley's Tavern on 52, we call it a car show. And I love driving by Buckley's Tavern on 52 because I love cars, but I hate it after I've passed. Well, I don't hate it. It's hard because I'm always in the minivan, right? But you know, my minivan is full of children who I love. That's the good life. That is the good life. I just have to go through the motions. It's a horizontal experience that I have to make vertical. This is the path to satisfaction. There's, um, it's, we could call it monkish thinking or maybe Eastern thinking, like Buddhist thinking. One response, it sounds right at first. I think it's really, really wrong, but it sounds right at first, is the way to deal with material possessions and to find satisfaction is to distance ourselves from the material world completely, to become no longer entangled with their effects on us. The abolition of kind of material connection. That's not Christianity at work. God is not trying to separate you from the material world. God is trying to right order your material world. He's trying to put the things in your life in the correct order. There's purpose in your toil. There's purpose in where you're working. There's purpose in your lot. There's purpose in your possessions. There's purpose in the fact that God is sustaining you. There's purpose in all of that. Meaningful purpose. And you separate yourself from that. And you separate yourself from reality. The Lord says, order them rightly before me and you will have the good life. When those things are out of order, we call that idolatry. There's only one word for it. Life out of order is idolatrous. Okay, I want to bring us to another side of the word. Would you go to Ephesians, or Philippians chapter 3, page 841. Um, now, in Philippians, we'll be in Philippians 3 and then we'll jump to 4. I want to deal with one idea of satisfaction, though. Uh, again, I think it is complicated. I don't say that simply because it's mysterious in my life. There's times when we ought to be satisfied and there's times when we ought not to be satisfied. You want a good athlete to not be satisfied with their time on the track. You want a child who's trying to learn the piano to not be satisfied until they can play the piece. You want a follower of Jesus to not be satisfied until we look like him. But we want the life 
our life in which we endeavor to look like him to be a whole and good life. That's satisfaction. So I don't think God's trying to raise a bunch of lazy Christians who sit on the porch watching life go by going, we're satisfied. He's trying to raise Christians who are full and whole and then want to be like him. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 3.12. He's talking about attaining to the resurrection. Uh, being holy like Christ is, is the subject at hand. But he says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. You see, he's not personally satisfied with where he is. Okay, but listen to what he says. It's my new favorite verse. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Isn't that a great line? I press on to make it my own because he's made me his own. That's where the satisfaction for the Christian is. The satisfaction of the Christian is is our endeavor to be like him is a safe endeavor. We're not under threat of not being his. We're not in danger of losing it. We're not under the oppression of having to get the right grade. We press on to make it our own because he's made us his own. There's a sense that Christ has gained the satisfaction of God for us. And we labor inside of that. That's what Paul's saying is, is I can joyfully even be discontent in myself because I'm safe. I'm safe in Christ. And look at his disposition. Verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. Again, I'm not done yet. But one thing I do just, I want you to feel his disposition, forgetting what lies behind and s- straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. How many different ways can you say that? I press on for the goal, the prize of the upward call. Paul's perspective is the Lord. It's safely in the faith of Christ, right? Christ has made him his own, and it's with the Lord. And it's in that, it's that environment that he's living his life out. And now if you turn to the fourth chapter, I, I stop there because I want you to come to the fourth chapter. And I want you to see his disposition, his disposition with regards to material needs. If you look at the 10th verse here, he's writing to the church in Philippi. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not not that I am speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Did you ever read that verse in context? We use this verse to be discontent. We use this verse to get better things. Do you realize the humble power of this verse? What Paul is saying is, because I am safely in Christ, because the satisfaction of God is on me because of the work of Christ, I am learning to be content regardless of my circumstances. Whatever my lot is, it's Ecclesiastes. Whatever my lot is, I'm grateful for it. If I'm an abounding lot, great. If I'm in a time of need and hunger, that's fine too. Because I'm in, I am where the Lord wants me, is what he's saying. 
He says, and that's how he's saying, in, in other words, in all this, I, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, is regardless of my setting, I can find contentment because Christ is there with me. We've misapplied this verse in our lives. We've used it to get more, to be more, to do better, to get higher, to climb faster. And it is such a halting verse. I can be content because of Christ. Normally, uh, not normally, on occasion, when I have kind of the house church vibe in me, and I want the I want the Lord's Supper to be a big feast, because it, with Him it will be a big feast, a Passover feast. I, I want that to happen, and sometimes I I lament at times the our tradition of few crackers and tiny plastic cups, but not today. Because today, I think it asks a good question. Is Jesus enough for you? Is this enough? Is this enough? This tiny little meal, is that what it is to you? Of what all of Jesus has done for us? Is this enough? Because the world can offer you a better meal. It cannot offer you a gooder meal. This is a good meal. Is it enough? Let's pray. Lord, you have been kind in the way you've bestowed mercy upon us, Lord. The chief among them is the gift of your son. For without him, we are in dire want, Lord. We are impoverished in the soul. We are subject to death. We are less than dust without him. So Lord, we thank you for your gift. We thank you for Christ who is obedient to the cross. We thank you that through his sacrifice, you can say you're satisfied. You can look on us and and be satisfied, Lord. And Father, we pray it's in that environment, in this reality, that we would begin to look at the world, Lord, that you would give us the right spirit to pray that our needs would be met. Our needs would be met. And Lord, give us a sense of contentment with the things that we have and a contentment with the lot that you've placed us in and a spirit of rejoicing in the toil you've given us, Lord. We pray that. We pray that. Help us to pray that frequently and often. For that is a gift of the Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.